This week on Hacker and the Fed, Hector and I speak with Aaron West, a Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney, founder of the Crypto Coalition, an over 800 member group of active law enforcement partners sharing cryptocurrency crime fighting techniques and the very tip of the spear for pig butchery, the latest online romance scam. Aaron educates us on what pig butchering is and how we can protect ourselves and our loved ones from being victimized. Please enjoy our conversation with this badass cybercrime fighter, Aaron West. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, I'm super excited to have a guest this week. We are going to be talking to Aaron West. And Aaron West is the Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney. She's a member of California's High Tech React Task Force. She built a crypto coalition. It's a group of 800 members of active law enforcement from local, state, federal, and international partners that sharing in cryptocurrency crime-finding techniques. And she's also running Operation Shamrock. Super excited to have her on. Hi, Erin. How are you? Hi, you guys. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be in such esteemed company. This is fun. Oh, it is, it, we should have a good time. So, Hector, what Erin's kind of famous for now, she's famous for a few things, and we'll talk about it. There's a SIM swapping case that she, uh, she's worked on for a long time, but now she's working on a thing called Shah Zupan, loosely translated to pig butchering, which is the latest romance scam with a investment spin to it. So it's uh, a lot of victims out there, Erin. Tell us a little bit about pig butchering. This is really something to, to know about and, and get on top of. It is a major new crime wave that is, uh, it's not super new. It's been coming at us for about the past year and a half. It's been going on for longer than that. It is um, scam factories in Southeast Asia are reaching out internationally and, and de developing relations. So it starts off a lot like a traditional romance scam. Uh, the scammers will meet their victims on LinkedIn or, or Instagram or a, a fake wrong number text. There's a lot of them out there and dating sites. And they start a relationship with the victim. And after about, it's a long con, after about a month of grooming the victim to have a very trusted situation with their scammer. And, and also during that month, really trying to figure out exactly how much money the victim has that's when the scammer introduces the idea of investing in cryptocurrency. So now, um, armed with all the endorphins of this new special relationship and seeing that they could even get rich from this relationship, our victims are pouring in millions and millions of dollars, literally liquidating everything they can to make money in this 
investment opportunity that turns out to be completely false. And so what we're seeing is victims worldwide who are losing every single penny they have. Yeah, no, the numbers are staggering. You know, I was reading today that the FBI's Internet Crimes Complaint Center, that's the uh, IC3, um, they're saying that crypto losses in 2022 from investment scams is $2.57 billion worldwide. That is insane. Oh, the number's crazy. Um, the number tied to investment scams is, as we know, low. Oftentimes, our victims are humiliated. They are ashamed. They are afraid of what might, you know, of, of how they might be received at law enforcement. They feel stupid, and so they don't report. So we know, no, we know those numbers are low. And if those numbers are that high, um, you know, even 4x of that we is $10 billion that's being taken from average, normal families across the world and put into the hands of Chinese organized crime, never to be seen again. It's, it's, a, it's a massive, massive problem. Yeah, I was reading also that pig butchering scams are now outpacing business email compromises, which we all know is a huge issue. So, uh, you know, this is even bigger, apparently. It is. And and the thing is, the victims are coming in everywhere and they're they're doing their best to report and they're doing their best to get help. And unfortunately, what they're finding is that they go to their local law enforcement and law enforcement isn't really ready for this. They don't know how to deal with it and they are not familiar with cryptocurrency. And so local law enforcement tells them they can't help. They refer to IC3. And so now the victims think, okay, well, I've reported it to the FBI and the FBI is going to handle it. And really what's happening there is that, you know, the FBI has, like all of us, has bandwidth issues and taking on case by case individual victims isn't really something that they are equipped to do right now and really that they shouldn't be doing. They should be dealing with the major enterprise. They should be compiling this data, like I'm sure they are, and looking at the major problem. I think it's on our local law enforcement to be able to help the victims in our jurisdiction. And so we've got to take this on. Yeah, Hector and I just did a story recently about there's only one FBI agent in cybercrime for every 50 Chinese hackers, and that's just nation state hackers. So, uh, yeah, we, the FBI is overwhelmed on the cyber. But tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing to help these victims. Yeah, so what we were seeing is that when these victims were coming to local law enforcement and weren't getting help, that that just that wasn't sustainable. So I work with the React Task Force. We are a high-tech investigative team. We cover the five Bay Area counties, so six million people. And so because of our experience in SIM swapping, we, we did some SIM swapping cases in 2018 and were really successful with getting cryptocurrency back to victims. We then decided that, that pig butchering was something we could handle, not in terms of taking down the enterprise, but in terms of helping our local victims. So we traced the cryptocurrency back to exchanges like Binance and OKX, and we were able to recover money for our victims. And once we got proof of concept, we started We started with one victim that we call ASR. He was a 30-year-old software engineer who lost nearly $300,000. We were able to trace his money, recover a substantial part, and then ultimately a judge awarded that he could have his money back. So by December of last year, right before Christmas, we had proof of concept that this was a viable way of assisting in pig butchering. But what we were seeing 
is that once we became successful, we got a lot of requests for help, which was great. But I would get a victim in Austin and I can't help a victim in Austin. So I'd cold call Austin police and try and find an interesting part, interested party. And that, that I'm, I'm using Austin. I don't mean to barrage Austin. I'm using that as an example. I don't sure. know that I actually called Austin. So if Austin's listening, I'm super sorry. I'm sure you have a very active cyber team down there ready to take this on. But what we were seeing is, is the nation wasn't equipped for this at all. And so um, unlike the feds who have opportunities to really collaborate amongst each other, the state and locals don't really have a good means for that. So I created something called the Crypto Coalition. It started in last September with 85 state, local, active law enforcement. And I created a listserv. And now we're up to 900 and we have federal and international members as well. And our, it's fantastic to have round the world interest in this because we're all learning this all at once. And the world is very small in cryptocurrency terms because we all know that this money is jetting everywhere and that it, it touches all parts of the world. So the Cryptocurrency Coalition is, is a very active listserv where we trade information about how to handle cryptocurrency exchanges, like who's Who's cooperative? Who isn't? Who should we reach out to? What should I do if I have a Bitcoin ATM case? What's my first step? What should I do? If, what should I do with these Binance records? How do I read them? All the things that my team was able to sort of bounce amongst each other in our bullpen, people working independently across the country didn't have that opportunity to have a team. And now all of a sudden you have a team and you have a team of really interested, eager parties who are ready to engage and are really interested in helping each other. How about arrests or indictments? Have you had any success in that, that realm or, or even infra infrastructure takedown? Yeah. So um, I think we really had to look at how we can be successful in this and how what would be the best way to, to measure our success. And when we looked at what was happening in Southeast Asia and we saw that the, the pig butchering is happening, in locked casino tower facilities that are guarded by people with AK-47s and that that was not, it was not a place where Santa Clara County was going to be able to make arrests. And we could tell from the cases that we were getting that it was the same scenario every time. The pig butchering scam itself really doesn't change. The way it changes is the scammers have their playbook and it's designed to go after literally any type of victim. They've got a playbook for a millennial. They've got a playbook for how do you talk to my 30-year-old software engineer in Santa Clara County or a 50-year-old divorcee or a 70-year-old man who'd lost his wife. So what we were finding is that the crime wasn't all that different. So if we weren't going to be able to make arrests, how could we help be helpful? And so Santa Clara County React Task Force is strong at investigation of of where the money goes. And so our measure of success has been how many victims we've been able to help. I think that's fantastic. I mean, I've been in law enforcement a long time and, and, and that really was never, you know, it's part of the goal, but, you know, most prosecutors that I worked with, you know, the arrest and, and you know, and the conviction was the the, the record book. But, but I, I think this is fantastic. And that's why I just want to support any way I can uh, what you guys are doing. I'm so glad to hear that because it really, it's a different metric and it's a different way of looking at it. And um, so we've been able to help 17 victims so far and we've returned money to, we've returned a million and a half dollars to them. We have another million 
to return. So we've seized two and a half million, which to me, the number that's most important is 17. That's our 17 victims. But another number that's really important to me is that I've had contact with hundreds and hundreds of victims. But what I love is our our task force has really investigated 75 of these crimes. So that is 75 victims who heard that law enforcement was taking their claim seriously, was spending some time on it, was looking at where the money was going. And if we were able to help, great. And if we weren't, we were able to give some closure. And I think for a lot of these victims, that's what's lacking is they just don't feel heard. They just don't feel like they, they feel like they have shotgunned requests everywhere for people to help and they just can't make contact with a human. So I think that something really valuable that Santa Clara County has been able to offer here is we hear you, we're not judging you, we're trying to find your money and either we can or we can't, but we're going to tell you that. And we're going to tell you, you know, maybe maybe something will turn up one day, but the way we've traced it and that we do not feel that there's any any further road for you. So for a lot of victims, it allows them to then move on because if you've just sent out your complaint to a number of different agencies and you never spoke to a person, that's that can be really that's a, another devastating part of this process. So one big part of the, the scam is using social media. Have you been able to partner at all with the social media companies uh, to, to help combat this? Yeah, that's a really big part of it because that's the on-ramp, right? And we've been able to identify there are four main ways that they are meeting, the scammers are meeting their victims. There are some new, new ones too, like Airbnb or Yelp or whatever, but really the primary ones we're seeing are the fake email, I mean, the fake text. And then primarily coming from LinkedIn, Meta, and Match, the companies under there. So we've definitely reached out to them. I can tell you that all three are very aware of this problem. I can tell you that when I worked with a family of a suicide victim, Meta was extremely cooperative in getting the profile down off its, off its site that was still active a week after the suicide and still attracting men. And I can tell you, you know, LinkedIn is, is actively trying all kinds of guards to keep those people off their platform. I think a lot of them are very successful in getting profiles taken down once reported. But unfortunately, they are still sneaking in because it's not slowing down. So they're still being able to access these platforms. And and I, I would love to see even more effort put into trying to stop that on-ramp to, if we can stop their access to victims, then we're halfway there. What are some things that we can look for red flags? What, what can listeners do to see if either themselves or maybe their parents or friends, you know, or may become a victim of this? What I always say is if someone is trying to reach out to you electronically that you don't know, you really need to vet them in these, this day and age. You really need to understand who this person is and what their motivation might be for trying to connect with you. Your listeners should be well aware of the the concept that these wrong number texts are not a wrong number and they are using even more and more crazy hooks to try to get you to respond. At first, it just used to be like, hi, or I'm Emma, why are you in my address book? But now we've seen them with, uh, you know, pictures of animals or or my dog is ill. Can you please, my dog needs to go to the vet. Can you help me with a vet appointment? And then the one disgusting one that um, my boyfriend received just a few weeks ago was, was a really young girl, maybe nine years old with lipstick on and like 
the concept there is, you know, maybe you're not interested in dogs or this attractive young woman, but maybe this nine-year-old with lipstick on is more your speed. So I think we're seeing that they are literally throwing out anything they can to get your attention. So so the number one, anyone reaching out to you with the wrong number text, there that is no such thing. That is no coincidence and you're being targeted and that's pig butchering. Number two, I mean, the dating one is tricky because you're you're actually actively looking for people to reach out to you. So you really need to vet those carefully. And, you know, fortunately at the moment, they're still, the scammers are still using um, language translators. So sometimes they're not always the the best English. And so be cautious of that when something doesn't sound quite right, or, you know, that's just not really something someone would say uh, or use in that context, like be, be wary of that and just be, be really, especially linked in all the time. There's so many just be wary of who's trying to, to reach you and think twice. Now, as for, you bring up another point too, and that's the parents. Um, I'm frequently getting contacted these days by, by people who will say, my, I think my mom is in a scam and, I, and she won't listen to me. And she says, this person is really her friend. And, and I said, oh, okay. And I, I'm like, oh, I'll send you some articles and show them to your mom. And she's like, no, no, my mom knows the articles. My mom knows what pig butchering is. But she says, this isn't pig butchering because... I, I, this is my friend and we've shared, we've shared personal information. So what's been helpful in those situations are I've been able to connect victims with, with prior victims. And once that they're able to have that kind of a conversation and realize like, oh, this is exactly what I experienced. And so did this person. Oh, maybe this is a scam. So it's a, it's a tricky one. It is a, it is a manipulation that we've never seen before. And really people are getting caught up in it. Yeah. I saw that there's two different groups that, that can kind of help victims. That's the society for citizens against relationship scams and advocating against romance scammers. Um, th- those are legit sites where people can go and talk to victims if they think their parents are being victimized or, or they themselves are being victimized. Yeah. Those are both really good sites. A um, couple of interesting things about each of them. The first one you mentioned, they definitely have peer groups, which I think is super helpful. This isn't the kind of damage that goes away quickly. This is not only did you lose all your money, you lost this trusted relationship. And so SCARS is really good at dealing with that. And what I find super interesting about the the R's, the, um, the relationship scammers one, is that was founded by a, a man whose image is still being used to draw in victims. And he's the one who's constantly being contacted by women saying like, why did you ghost me? And, and he has no knowledge of these people. It's just his image is being used. So when you contact ours, you're contacting someone who really gets it, who really understands the feelings that you're going through because he has, he's experienced them along with you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp has set out on a mission to make sure everyone has easy, affordable, and private access to high-quality therapy. I started using BetterHelp when they joined as a sponsor for the podcast. It's been a great experience for me. My father passed away during COVID, and because of the restrictions, I wasn't able to be there for him. He died alone in a hospital. I didn't realize how much this has been really weighing on me. You know, BetterHelp came into my life at a perfect time. The initial process for signing up and getting matched with a therapist was simple and easy. Uh, I just filled out some questions about how I felt 
in my preference on a therapist and I was matched with a therapist that day. It was super easy to pick the type of communication I wanted with my match therapist. You know, they offered text or cell phone or video. And I chose phone. I thought it was easiest to pick up the phone and just have a phone call with my therapist once a week. It, it, like I said, it's been great for me. It's been nice just to talk to a professional about my feelings. I've had a great experience with BetterHelp. Uh, if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I'm excited about this process and really happy to partner with BetterHelp on this podcast. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash H-A-T-F today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash H-A-T-F. You and I have talked before and I asked you, and I like your answer, but pig butchering. Sort of a, a strange name for things. Um, I'm sure some victims don't want to be associated with the, you know, a pig. But wh what do you think of the naming? I think the naming is actually right on target for a lot of reasons. Number one, that's what they named it. We didn't come up with that. That's their name for it. Um, it's Shazupan from the Chinese. Uh, but somebody was describing it the other day as like the concept of pig butchering is it's not just that they're eating pizza of the pig pieces. They're eating the whole thing from snout to tail. So that's the whole concept is they're coming after literally every penny that you have. So that's like, I like that part of it too, because I think it really captures it. But to me, the most important part of why we should continue to call it pig butchering is because it's kind of a smack in the face when you hear it. And it makes you think, wait, what is, what is she talking about? Like, why is this woman with the purple glasses talking about pig butchering? What, what is that? I want to hear that. And it's, it gets attention in a way that financial grooming never would. Like you're not going to click on this to hear about financial grooming, but you might want to know what pig butchering is about because it's so crazy. And when we have something this massive that needs so much attention, uh, I'll, take any, I'll take anything going my way to get you to pay attention. Hector, do you have any questions while we're in pig butchering? Yeah, no, absolutely. I've just been kind of enjoying the back and forth here. I think my questions are more on... Some of the pushback that you may, you may have received during your investigations, I, I'll give you an example. Um, I know that you uh, mentioned ASR, which is like your first uh, big case that you brought up here. Um, you were able to recover funds for that individual. What's that process look like? Uh, does it require that, you know, that the crypto exchange is, is one that's regulated here in the U.S.? Does it require that uh, there are certain elements that kind of align in a way that works for you guys? Um, that you could actually have reach to. If you could explain that process and, and maybe some of the pushback you received during your investigations, I think that would be very interesting to hear for the audience. When the REACT task force decided that we were first going to try to get some success for ASR, this is something we hadn't done before. We knew how to trace cryptocurrency on the blockchain. We knew how to use our tools to figure out where that money might go. And we saw that for him, it went to an exchange, it went to Binance. When I first started hearing about Binance a year and a half ago, I didn't know how cooperative they would be. They are not based in the United States. They are not required to work with us in any way, and they sure aren't required to comply with a, a search warrant from Santa Clara County. So what we saw was we reached out to them. And um, at that time, Binance had recently hired some some really top agents from IRSCI, and they were really interested in trying to clean up 
well, trying to make a, a safer place for cryptocurrency. And they were interested in getting dirty money off their platform. So when we reached out to them to ask about, okay, well, you, you don't have to accept our, our process, so, so will you? They told us the steps that were going to be required to work with them. And so when we, when we find money at their platform, they accept a, a request on letterhead to, um, to freeze that, that cryptocurrency, and then they give us seven days to get a search warrant together. And once we get a search warrant that is supported by probable cause and signed by a judge in Santa Clara County, we then present it to them and they will move the money back to us. So they do not have to do this. And for a while, they were one of the only exchanges that was willing to be cooperative. And uh, a few months into this, we kept finding that a lot of the money was going to OKX. And we thought, oh, gosh will OKX be compliant? And for a while, for months, they were not compliant and they were not interested in working with us, but things have changed. And now if we have victims who have money at OKX, we are able to get money back from OKX as well. And so I'm, I'm glad you asked about that because I think it's a really positive trend we're seeing that international cryptocurrency exchanges are willing to be compliant with American search warrants. That is awesome. I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that. Big shout out to Binance and OKX, um, because like you said, you know some of these are not based in the U.S. and so they may not want to follow you know uh, uh, whatever process that you're, you're you're trying to engage them with. So big shout out to them. Now let's say worst case scenario. Let's say and just bear with me because I like scenarios. Okay. <laughs> so worst case scenario, you see a trend. Let's say the next 20 victims you get in contact with are part of a major engagement and the bad actors are using a very specific uh, exchange that does not want, they, they won't even respond to you. They're not interested in working with you and they have U.S. customers, right? At that point, do you, um, in a position you're in, start to look at agencies within the United States to, to either apply pressure to the exchange or investigate like the Security and Exchange Commission? Is that something that would have to be a thing in the worst case scenario? Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, I mean, I, I don't think we can expect that, that things will always be going our way as we are on this journey to figure out how to make the crypto world safer. And I think that we are gonna continue to run up against exchanges that are not going to want to be compliant. And so there, you're absolutely right. It seems like there are a lot of ways to try and go after getting compliance and certainly we'll use any tool we can, whether it's public pressure, whether it's uh, pressure from the federal government, whatever it is to get them to, to give up victim money that they're holding. Oh yeah. And you know, I got to say, I, I was just kind of sitting back and listening to you speak and just putting myself in that position, you know, as a victim, trying to envision what that feels like. I can imagine um, feeling gutted, um, feeling uh, betrayal. And um, I'm sure that, that that's that's devastating for a lot of the, the folks that you've had to deal with so far, 75 plus. And, and big kudos to you for taking this on. And big shout out for, for Santa Clara, right, um, for, for supporting you and your team on this. Because I know that a lot of cities and states and counties may not think that this is a, a an initiative that needs to take place there, right at that place. Um, so big, big shout out to, to, to the folks who are supporting you. The the one question I had in my mind is: so as we know, all across the world, 
in, in some states, you have computer, computer emergency response teams or certs, right? And they do very well. They're mostly nonprofits. Some are government-sponsored or supported. Do you feel like what you're doing, your operation, is something that you could you could do nationally? Or do you or in the long term, would you rather each state kind of come up with their own program? And you would set guidelines and foundations for that, similar to CERT. Yeah, I, I think that there is a big opportunity here to um to develop a, a single procedure for how to do this and then multiply it across the nation. I think that we have this great task force in Santa Clara County where we have local and federal partners working together to to make things happen. I think that's a really, really smart way to do it. And I think that we've we've worked on coming up with some innovative ideas that aren't actually difficult, that they're pretty simple. And I love the idea of multiplying them and scaling them across the nation so that everybody doesn't have to come up with their own plan. I think that was that was one of the big goals of the crypto coalition is sharing sharing what has worked here and then being able to learn about what's working elsewhere. So the coalition has a SharePoint that has all of our documents on it that have worked in Santa Clara County. Like here's a here's a warrant for Binance that they will accept. Use it. Here's our policy and procedure for how to how to have a government wallet. Use this. You don't have to redo it for yourself. So I love the idea of being able to to collaborate nationally and and have one one process that works. I hope that answers your question. No, it really does. Absolutely. Because one of the things that I I kind of deal with in terms of like the Q&A questions when I'm doing events, um, aside from doing the work I do, uh, I'm a pen tester. I'm a red teamer. So I'm constantly engaging with, with organizations that kind of want to get an idea as to where they stand in the security posture. And then privately, I do uh, private events speaking to organizations and associations. And I've noticed that um, out of all the different organizations or associations I've spoken to, maybe one or two collaborate with each other. And I've done maybe 100 speeches in the last two years or so, okay? Which is not a lot, but it's enough to... Well, it's enough to gauge, right? It's enough to gauge where we're at nationally. And I've done speeches all around the country here. I could tell you, for example, the, log- the the logistics industry. You know, think of the FedExes and UPSs of the world. Those companies actually collaborate with each other when it comes to threat intel, and they speak to each other, right? Credit unions, that's another group of, of organizations. That's one industry where they're starting to collaborate with each other now. But financial, healthcare, these companies do not talk to each other for various reasons, mostly policy, okay? Do you foresee that being a problem, similar problem for you, um, when it comes to law enforcement, will a small town police department in like in the middle of, of Arizona want to be able to collaborate with you? Do you th- do you see any problems with that or have you run into any any issues with any law enforcement so far? Yeah, I think that actually there is a big willingness to collaborate because I, it hasn't really been done before. There really hasn't been a situation where we're all learning a new technology all at the same time. And there are very few experts who really know. And so we're, we're no experts in Santa Clara County. We've just done it successfully. And we're, we're definitely learning. Um, and, but we're also really happy to show you what, what's worked for us. So I think what we're seeing nationally is a lot of small town local law enforcement that is experiencing a victim coming in and saying, hey, I've got a, I've got a cryptocurrency case and I don't know how to handle it. And being really open to the idea of 
oh, there are other people who've done this. Yeah, I want to know what they did. Yeah, I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to listen to their webinar. We do webinars every three weeks and I'm going to learn from them. And, um, and what I actually have seen too, and Chris and I were just talking before this started about like, it's a small community, these people who are interested in crypto and are interested in law enforcement related to crypto. And everybody who's into it right now at this point in history is into it because they're into it. So they want to share, they want to help, they want to teach other people. And so nobody's really being forced to do this right now in a way that they they hate it. People are there because they're the guy at their agency who's like, yeah, I'm kind of interested. I'll do this. So what I've seen is really only positive. Oh, yeah, that's great. I mean, I love to hear that the folks that, that you know, you've communicated with thus far, even the, the small town police departments are interested in this and they're, they're willing to work with you and, and at the very least sign up for a webinar. I mean, that that is fantastic. And I, I say if if and we always do this, Chris and I. Um, but if there's anything we could do to help amplify, please feel free to reach out. You know, that's one thing that we love to do. At least, at least I do for sure. And I know Chris loves that as well. But yeah, I mean, that's that's awesome. Um, I guess I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up on mine with one final question. On the technical side, are there any technical limits that you guys are running into when it comes down to an investigation? I know you you guys have already experienced. You already have experience with. Um, kind of tracing transactions and kind of investigating transactions. Is there any technical issues that you guys are running into right now? And if so, and if there are, um, what is it? What what can the community do to help? Like we have a lot of security practitioners listening. We have a lot of uh, very smart tech people listening. Is there anything that the community can do to help you guys? I love this question because it feeds right into my Operation Shamrock idea. And my Operation Shamrock concept was like, Okay, so if we agree that we're not going to be able to arrest anybody over there right now, what is it we can do to stop this pig butchering phenomenon? And so I really appreciate your idea from the get-go of amplifying this message. I appreciate that. I've been talking for a long time about educate, seize, disrupt. Like those are the three things that I think we can do to try and at least decrease the the chokehold that we that these beasts have over our victims. And so there are, there are things that I'm really good at, and that's the educate. I'm really good at that. Where I have less experience and could really use help is a couple of things. Number one, like how can the financial industry, how can they slow down the flow of this money? That is stuff that I know that there are a lot of financial institutions and that, that could probably think of a couple of ways from what they're seeing to make to make a difference here. I always say that I feel like this is a giant puzzle and we all have our pieces and I and my piece has been education and so I don't I don't know what I don't know. Like if somebody at at each of these institutions knows something about a way that we could disrupt this in some way. And so I'm eager to hear suggestions and things that I don't know about. I'm also really interested in disrupting their infrastructure. You know, they are um, they are using fake domains that they're real domains, but they look like investment sites, but they're completely phony. You know, I'd, I'd love to start taking those down in mass. I would love to to monkey with the way that they are moving their money and how they're getting their electricity and how I mean, there's a million ways that we can make this more difficult for them. I'm open to, to ideas and how to mobilize that to make that happen. Do you have some sort of way of collecting that information? Like IC3 just 
intakes, intakes, intakes. But do, do you personally, your organization, have a way of, you know, hey, this was the website that I was using, but, I, you know, I reported to my local law enforcement, but this is what, what they, they were, the domain they sent me. Yeah, no, I, I think that's part of what I need to work on is come, that's actually one of my points is that um, we don't have a good clearinghouse for all this. IC3 has has what they have, but I think that there there can be better ways of of collecting this information so that it gets acted upon. And so, yeah, um, yeah, Chris, that's definitely something on my list and and something that's important to do. Yeah, I have six or seven different websites that I've gotten in the last two weeks uh, on these cases. So, and and they're active domains. I can see where they're going. I see where they opened up. You know, you know, so subpoenas to get you know subscriber information. There were just search warrants to shut them down or whatever you need to do. So before the pig butchering, you sort of made a name for yourself in the SIM swapping cases. Can you just kind of tell the audience about some of the cool stuff you were doing with that? Yeah, that was a really fantastic opportunity that dropped into our lab in 2018, where a local victim said that he had lost, um, just to quickly go over SIM swapping, he had lost access to his phone service. So everything on his phone was still there, but he couldn't make calls, receive calls or text. And so what had happened, we didn't understand it at the time, but we started hearing from other victims as well, is that the objective of the, of the hacker who's taken over your phone service is to access your cryptocurrency accounts and drain them. And so that's what SIM swapping was. It's a situation where you go to bed like a normal person on a Friday night and hackers are up in their parents' basement eating their Grubhub and actively working to steal your money. And they have a connection at one of the phone companies to, to change the service. And then they start rerouting your traffic. And, you know, they've, they've picked out their victims in advance and they know, they know exactly what they're looking for. And they're going to go straight to Chris Darbell at gmail.com and do forgot password and send me a, send me a link and a, a code. And then that code is going to go to the hacker that's now running the traffic on your phone. The hacker then goes to Gmail and changes your password and locks you out and then starts going through your Gmail to find out where you're holding your crypto. Is it at Gemini? Is it at Coinbase? Where is it? And then doing the same process at the crypto exchange and stealing your money. You wake up the next morning, you've got no phone service. You can't access Facebook, Gmail, Twitter. And worst of all, you've lost your money and people were losing huge, huge dollar amounts that, you know, like you could never steal that much money from one person before, before this crypto nonsense. And I say nonsense, but like it, it, it really, it really amped the ability to like, like, I don't know why you would even bother like holding up a 7-Eleven anymore when you could really drain millions of dollars. And that's what was happening. Yeah, no, the scams and the ransomwares and all that. Yeah, I agree. Cryptocurrency is sort of the birth of all that. And that's not my email address, you bastards. Don't try to try to hack into me. <laughs> so. I hope not. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. So, uh, But nonsense is a good word for sure. Um, it, it wasn't that long ago, maybe a couple days ago, maybe a few weeks ago. I forgot exactly when. When I woke up and my phone had no service. I was like, oh, man, I got SIM, SIM swapped. I guess uh, my, my service provider just... Uh, for whatever reason, unregistered my phone and then a reboot brought it back online. You know, I think in this situation, and since you have the most experience here, at least uh, way more than I do in this in this scenario, how do you deal with that? So you wake up, your your phone, you know, your phone is no longer working. You have no access to any, any of your emails. What does a victim do at that point? Oh, they they lose their marbles. They freak out. 
I mean, can you even imagine? And so, and oftentimes they would do it on a Friday night because then you really couldn't get access till Monday back in the day. I mean, now things are a little bit different, but I mean, our victims would then go to Apple or go to, go to AT&T or whatever. And, and AT&T would say, oh no, but you asked us to change it. So really desperate situations. So from our side, we were able to figure it out using just regular detective techniques, which were fantastic, which is, well, where is the service going? So, you know, we know our victim was in Cupertino, California, and then all of a sudden service then connects in Boston. Well, that's our SIM swapper. So how do we, how do we move forward with that? And, and so it, we used some great investigative techniques and we made a lot of nationwide arrests and we sent people to prison and we recovered their McLarens that they bought with uh, crypto. And it was a really, it was a really successful few years for Santa Clara County in investigating and prosecuting SIM swappers. Wow. I, I would say, you know, just hearing that, the fact that you actually caught some of these guys, um, some of these bad actors, I mean, big kudos to you. You know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan and supporter of that. You know, at one point I was a bad guy. I'm not sure you know my story too well. I do know you were a bad guy, but I... <laughs> but I, at one point I was a bad guy. Most of my victims were foreign governments. So I would attack like the Chinese government or the Russian government. This is why I cannot travel to China or Russia right now. <laughs> and I don't, I, don't, I don't think I ever will, uh, will be able to. But although my targets were usually foreign governments or even um, massive corporations, federal contractors, et cetera, there were still victims, right? There were still victims that were just part of it. And I, I feel terrible at times. And sometimes when I'm, when I'm speaking with, with Chris about this, I, I always give like the forewarning. Um, I'm not here to glorify any of that. I'm just trying to share my experiences. Hopefully that helps either the victims or even the organizations, right? Um, so I just wanted to like thank you for all the work that you've been doing, kind of helping these victims out, man, because I know it's not easy. Now, just listening to you and what you're saying, one thing we do with this podcast, we try to give lessons. I'm going to give a lesson based off what you just what you just said a moment ago. I would love to hear what your lessons are from from so far the pig butchering attacks and the sim swapping, and then of course you know uh, we'll go from there. So one of the things that I, I've I've uh, I've mentioned here in the podcast before is to try to help prevent or try to mitigate sim swapping. And we're talking about sim swapping in regards to like social engineering, right? Where a bad actor calls T-Mobile, for example, and says, hey, I am John Doe, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the one thing I offer for the audience is call T-Mobile now, as soon as you listen to this podcast, and set up a support password, right? That's going to be a password that, that's not related to your current passwords that can only be used during support if someone tries that attack. And also, the one thing that I've, I've been telling people now, especially more recently, is you know, invest in security keys or something similar um, and avoid attaching your phone number to sensitive accounts. There you go. Look at that. Got a security key. I love it. So those are my lessons I got from listening to you. Is there anything that you could offer based on, you know, this discussion here? Yeah, I um, I love those ideas. I also love the idea of just being really aware that using your phone as a recovery method is a bad idea. Because that means if you ever do get SIM swapped, anyone who has access, any any accounts you have that tie your phone as your two-factor authentication are um, susceptible to hackers taking them over. So use something other than that. I also love the idea of a password manager and having really difficult passwords and not using... I have so many friends that um, that even knowing what I'm doing still use like the same, like the same sports 
password or whatever for everything. And, and you just, you can't live like that anymore. It's just, it's too risky. And, and everything's out there on the dark web. Like every password you've ever used is on the dark web and somebody can find it. So, so you just have to be really smart about, about the passwords you're using. In your sin swapping cases, do, were any of them involving like low level um, telephone employees getting access? Were you, did you make any arrests uh, or anything like that? And because Hector and I talk about sin swapping all the time and it's always that guy working at, you know, whatever. Oh yeah. Or at a kiosk or yeah. Mm -hmm. The the level of access they have into our records at these telephone places are insane. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Agree. And that's always the example I use is like, they can be bought for 50 bucks or a bag of weed or a promise that you'll cut them in the deal. So Yeah. Um, but I mean, I also see the issue of like, well, yeah, I really did lose my phone and I really do need a new SIM card. So you don't want it to be that difficult. If you're just Aaron West rolling into Best Buy, I want to be able to get a new phone with a, but it's a really tough balance to, um, be able to identify the correct person that should be having access to that phone. So, all right, Aaron, our last question. Uh, We get a lot of questions from parents. How do I get my kids into cybersecurity? People, how do I get into cybersecurity? A lot of parents want their daughters to get involved in cybersecurity because it's such a growing field. So can you tell us a little bit about your path in becoming a badass cybercrime fighter? Well, first of all, I love the idea of, um, of young women getting into this. I was just at a conference in Boston, and I looked around, and it was investigators. And I was like, I am the only woman in this room. And um, w- there's no reason for that. Like, this is such an interesting field and it's, there's no reason why it should be male dominated. There's plenty of reasons that uh, women can work a keyboard too. And so I would love to see more women involved. My path, I think my path really speaks to how accessible this area is. I mean, I, I've been a prosecutor for 25 years. I prosecuted sexual assault cases, did a lot of trials. And really eight years ago, I got into high-tech crime, but really only five years ago into crypto. And so it's all learnable. I, I, I think that um, there are so many ways to, to learn this technology that are, um, that are accessible. I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I, I started making lists of when someone would say a word I didn't know, like token loan or tornado cash or API, I would just watch a 10-minute YouTube video and figure out what that was. So um, I think, you know, certainly there's like educational routes that can be, be taken, but also you can just be, you know, a regular mom like me who actually cares about victims and figures out a way to try and help victims using this great new technology that makes it even easier than it ever was. Hey, I re- really appreciate you coming on the show. It was really interesting. I'm sure we're going to get a hundred questions from our listeners about pig butchering and that sort of thing. And I'll include the links to the groups in the description. Uh, like Hector said, if there's anything that Hacker in the Fed or, you know, I own a security company, uh, Naxo, um, anything we can ever do to help you, please let us know. Um, even if it's just get your message out or if you need some technical assistance, you know, we, we're more than happy to help you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome. I'm really glad to have um, met you both. And this was really fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Cheers. Cheers. 